Hello and welcome to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. Today, I'm fortunate to have with me Dr. Barbara Hutchinson. Dr. Barbara Hutchinson is a renowned cardiologist who treats patients from all over the world. She's one of the few doctors in the United States who is board certified in both cardiovascular disease and sleep medicine. She was born in Trinidad and Tobago. She earned her Bachelor of Science in Chemistry at the University of the West Indies, PhD, doctorate degree in cardiovascular pharmacology from Howard University in Washington, DC, and MD, Medical Doctor and Cardiology Fellowship from the University of Maryland in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Hutchinson, thank you so much for coming to CocoaPods podcast today. Thank you for having me. Now you have an active social media presence and you talk about a lot of things. So just in general, one of the things you talked about was the benefit of a heart healthy diet. And women from all over the world, pregnant women can benefit from a heart healthy diet. So you talked about how regardless of the stage of life, which includes pregnant women and postpartum women, it is possible to design a heart healthy diet that is consistent with our personal preferences, lifestyles and cultural customs. Can you explain that to us, please? Yes. That's a great question because often when we talk about diet, people always associate it with something negative, something that I have to deprive myself of. And all I'm saying is, as we eat, we do not have to deprive ourselves of the things that we enjoy. It's just about making healthy choices. So it's not low carb, it's good carb, it's good fat. It's good protein if you have protein. So eating can be enjoyable. And when I say when you go to the grocery store as we make our shopping list, very, very important to eat clean and make healthy choices from the things we enjoy eating. And your area of specialization is sleep medicine. And again, regardless of our stage of life, we're either sleeping too much or not sleeping enough. There are things that come with, um, the medical conditions that can come with sleeping. How much sleep do we really need each night, you know, for just to be healthy in our lives? Great, great question. I hear that all the time because I hear people saying, oh, I don't need much sleep. I can operate on two or three hours of sleep. You may be able to just sleep two, three hours, but that does not mean that is the optimum amount of sleep one, and that is the best type of sleep for you. For all of us, we need to get a good seven to nine hours of sleep. And a lot of things happen when we go to sleep. I like to think of sleep as us simmering down after a busy day so that we are recharging for the next day. And so as we sleep, several things happen. Our blood pressure gets lower, our heart rate gets lower, all the enzymes in our body that causes activation, they decrease. And so 
Length of sleep is important. And there's actually studies that's now showing or linking our length of sleep to plaque buildup. And of course, if you know there's plaque buildup in the artery, that can lead to heart attack, that can lead to stroke. So there's a link, not only with the length of time that we sleep, but other chronic diseases. For example, if you sleep too little, you're putting yourself at risk of having a stroke. If you sleep too much, you're also putting yourself at risk of having a slope. So there's that sweet spot where we need to have enough sleep. We're not like babies sleeping 12 hours because that is too much, but we need to have that adequate amount of sleep. You said that it might be important to invest in a sleep tracker. I mean, I've read that. What is a sleep tracker? What does it cost? Why should we invest in a sleep tracker? Well, the tracker may be helpful for those people that are actually thinking they're not sleeping enough or sleeping too much. Now we have a lot of wearables, not just for the heart, but there are wearables now that has what I call an accelerometer in it, can tell whether you're standing, whether you're lying. And those accelerometers are used to determine when you go to sleep. Although the assumption sometimes is if you lie in flat, you're sleeping. And you and I know that you could lie in bed and be tossing and turning and not sleeping. But in any case, there are some trackers now that can actually test the length of time that you sleep. So when you wake up in the morning, it can tell you how many hours of sleep that you got. That's good because if you notice that it's giving you erratic sleep, number one, too little sleep or not enough sleep, you could now bring that to the attention of your healthcare provider so that they could look further into your overall sleep pattern because you want to identify that very early because if it needs to be intervened on, they can do that. Now, are the sleep trackers expensive? Some sleep tracker, believe it or not, are also incorporated in some of the smart watches. In addition to the watch being able to give you blood pressure and heart rate, it can also tell you how long you're sleeping. And there are some trackers that are, like I said, incorporated in other wearable devices. And some you can get a sleep tracker for less than $100. So I do have some medical students working with me and they did send in some questions that they wanted the expert to answer. And these questions are from third year medical student, Minji Ra. One of the questions that she asked was that, what is sleep apnea? What are the symptoms of sleep apnea and what causes sleep apnea? So I'll start first with what is sleep apnea? In simple layman's term, that means when you go to sleep, you stop, I said stop breathing for at least 10 seconds. Now we are all allowed to stop breathing up to five times in one hour. But sleep apnea is when you stop breathing for longer than 10 seconds. Now there are different types of sleep apnea. You have first obstructive sleep apnea, where there is something obstructing at the back of the throat. Most of the time it's the tongue that falls back when you lie down and prevents you from breathing, prevents you from moving air. So that's obstructive sleep apnea. Then there is central sleep apnea, where the respiratory center in the brain and the communication in the lungs, that circuit is broken. So you could have obstructive or you could have central sleep apnea. 
The question was, how could you tell if you have one of those? Well, for those people, I'll start first with obstructive sleep apnea. People may describe sleeping at night and all of a sudden they wake up short of breath. They wake up choking. They wake up and their heart's beating very fast. Or they may wake up several times, toss and turn during the night. Their sleep is not restful. They may say in the morning when they wake up after sleeping eight hours that they're still tired. During the day, between 12 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon, they can't stay awake. So they uh, often what happens at night is reflected in our bodies during the day. So during the day, they may describe palpitations, their heart skipping a beat, very tired, shortness of breath during the day, although there's nothing wrong with your lungs, nothing wrong with your heart. So these are some of the symptoms that you could have associated with obstructive sleep apnea. And, you know, how do you diagnose sleep apnea? And, you know, also, how does it affect a pregnant woman? So sleep apnea can be diagnosed by what we call a sleep study. And now you can do a sleep study in your own home. It's called a home sleep study. Or you can actually go into a sleep lab where they hook up all the leads and you can have a sleep test done. Now, when the sleep test is done, remember I told you, we're all allowed to stop breathing up to five times. So sleep apnea, if we're looking first as obstructive sleep apnea, it's graded. It can be graded as mild. If you stop breathing anywhere between five to 15 times in one hour. It's moderate if you stop breathing 15 to 30 times in one hour. And of course, it's severe sleep apnea if you stop breathing more than 30 times in one hour. Now, you said this is how we can diagnose it, either at home or in a sleep lab. And often what I found is that people, there's greater compliance when people sleep at home uh, in their own environment. Sometimes we get better results. Although in a lab, in addition to the sleep, we can also observe that individual. So you could see if they're talking in their sleep, if their legs are moving in their sleep. So you could tell other things that could be associated with the sleep apnea when they are observed in a sleep lab. Now, do you see any differences in pregnant women compared to non-pregnant women with the sleep apnea? Well, pregnancy and during pregnancy, you could have exacerbation of sleep apnea. So people may have had mild sleep apnea. And now during pregnancy, especially in the second and third trimester, when that fetus is now pushing against the lungs, it can become even more, uh, it, it can go from mild to moderate or even severe. And once you've made the diagnosis from these sleep studies, I mean, what do you do to like anybody? And then do you make modifications for a pregnant woman in the treatment of sleep apnea? Sure. So there's several ways of treating sleep apnea. Remember I said it's obstructive sleep apnea. So one way is that you can have a device that you could put into your mouth while you're sleeping to pull the jaw forward or to change the area in the back of your throat. So that's one. And usually a dentist can build that. It's called a dental appliance 
or a, a modifying an appliance that modifies your jaw. It pulls your jaw forward. It opens the back so air can flow through. So that's one way. The second way is what we call a CPAP, where you use pressure to keep the back of the airway open. And that pressure could be a fixed pressure or it could be automatic, automatic pressure, where you have a range and you select the best range that's good for you. So those are two other methods. The third way, and this is a little more invasive, is surgical, where they could go into the back of your throat and all the structures that are obstructing back there, the surgeon can use his scalpel to decrease those structures or cut away some of it. And as it sounds, that's a little more invasive. And then there's a fourth method now that you can use to treat obstructive sleep apnea. It's like a little, like we have a pacemaker for the heart. You could have a little device that's implanted under your collarbone and it paces this muscle on the bottom of your throat while you sleep. So with this device, when you go to bed at night, you turn it on right at the side of your bed. And when you get up in the morning, you turn it off. So these are all different ways of treating obstructive sleep apnea. But I believe in tailoring the treatment to the individual because there's some people who cannot tolerate anything on their face. So that means the CPAP may be out. You can try them on some of these dental appliances to see if by changing the dimensions of the jaw or pulling the jaw forward, if that helps. Some people, again, they may need that little device implanted, especially those that have severe obstructive sleep apnea that's causing chronic problems, having that this little device uh, pacing the bottom of the train to see if that works. So there's several now coming on the market that can do that. And of course, surgical option as a, a surgery as an option. Now, is excess weight related to sleep apnea, like if you are obese Obesity has been tied to sleep apnea, but that's one myth because you have people that are not obese. They wear 100 pounds that can also have sleep apnea. And again, it, it all goes back to how much is everything fitting at the back of your throat because someone that's very slim may have a crowded throat. And so they have apnea when they lie down. And I have had people that are obese getting ready for bariatric surgery that do not have obstructive sleep apnea. So all, although it has been associated with it, you can have people that are obese. The marker that we use often though is neck size. And in men, if you have a neck size greater than 17 inches, it puts you at risk of having sleep apnea. And for women, if you have a neck size of 15 inches, it puts you at risk of having sleep apnea. And on the other end, if your neck size is very small, again, you could have a crowded throat causing obstructive sleep apnea. Is there any particular sleeping position that is the best position and maybe even for a pregnant woman, do you know, can you advise us on the different sleeping positions? <clears throat> well, it's interesting that you should ask that question because there are most of the studies that look at the sleep studies, most people tend to have obstruction when they're lying on their back. And so when it's very mild, sometimes just by changing position, changing to the right side or changing to the left, that can affect the uh, obstruction. So sometimes there are some people we said, 
sleep on your left side or sleep on your right side. For pregnant women, now you could sleep on the right or on the left, but you know sometimes with the pregnant women, depending on which side they sleep on, it can affect the blood flow. Yeah. So that is what you have to take into consideration for pregnancy. And th this is a long time ago, what they would do, especially with men, is they would put a bra, they wear a bra backwards. And in the back of the bra, they have um, tennis balls. So every time they lie on their back in the bra with the tennis balls, it's uncomfortable. So they're forced to roll over on either side uh, that, that, <laughs> to be able to sleep. Wow. So they put the bras on the men. Yes. Backwards wow. with the tennis ball. <laughs> but how about as you get older, how is sleeping pattern affected by the hormone changes, you know, along with female aging? You know, once you leave this pregnancy stage and you start getting older as you get older as you would imagine with with uh, menopause you have alterations in the hormones your estrogens decrease and those hormonal changes can feed all the way back to the brain and predispose you either to sometimes central sleep apnea and of course obstructive sleep apnea because sometimes as people get old structures are not as tight as they are when you are younger or less mature, I should say. And so that can also predispose to obstructive sleep apnea. Last question from Minjin. Is heart failure, like your heart failing, related to your sleeping pattern, your inability to sleep or to sleep apnea or to sleep disorders? Absolutely, sure. People that have congestive heart failure, and this is whether it is with good function or poor function can predispose to central sleep apnea and they even have obstructive sleep apnea. And now again, there are ways of treating that. We could start first with, of course, optimizing their medication, but beyond medication optimization, sometimes some patients need a CPAP to mm. treat their obstruction or even other machines, types of machines that we use to treat central sleep apnea. And so, you know, I just want to go off a little bit, you know, Dr. Hutchinson, you've won many awards and recognitions, and you are one of the top 50 women to watch in Maryland, top 100 women in Maryland in 2014, 2016, and 2020, and a Brava Award winner, an Enterprising Woman of the Year Award winner, and member of the Enterprising Women Advisory Board and past president of the Association of Black Cardiologists. You are also a fellow of the American College of Cardiology and a diplomat of the American Board of Internal Medicine. You know, if you want to talk to medical students that are aspiring your kind of career path, what advice would you give them? The main thing that I would say is be passionate about the field. You shouldn't be going into medicine because your mom wants you to do it or your dad wants you to do it, or you've looked at your siblings and that's what they are. 
You have to be passionate about the field. And that's the one thing that I would say. I get up every single day enjoying what I do, looking forward to going to work, looking forward to meeting a new set of patients each day. I'm just passionate about the overall cardiovascular field, whether it's looking at risk factors, whether it's prevention, whether it's treating people who've had a heart attack, people with arrhythmias. I just enjoy the field. Well, and was it a long time, the training? What would you say from a timeline point of view? Well, I think knowing why I went into it would be helpful. The reason I went into cardiovascular uh, disease management overall, because as you've heard before, I actually started by being a pharmacologist, a cardiovascular pharmacologist that is studying the drugs first before I even met the patients. So you were a specialist, you studied the drugs used to treat cardiovascular diseases, the medication. Yes. And it goes back to childhood where I grew up in the Caribbean. Both my parents lived in the same village. And as I looked at my father's side of the family, everyone had heart disease. And my mother's side of the family, they were all healthy. And as a child, I said, they're eating the same thing, I thought. They're living in the same community. Why that big dichotomy in terms of heart disease? And that's where my curiosity began. I said, I'm going to go into this field so that one day I'll be able to figure out why there was that dichotomy in my parents growing up. And so even after being a cardiologist, you also studied sleep medicine. You you are one of the few people that are both cardiologists and a sleep medicine specialist in the United States. Why the interest in sleep medicine? This is in the last seven to 10 years or so. And I realized it goes back to, again, my passion of cardiovascular disease, because I got several referrals of patients literally falling asleep 2 p.m. in the afternoon, going from work, and their physicians thought it was because of some kind of arrhythmia they were having. So they sent all these patients to me. And as I looked at it, I said, this is a young 20-something-year-old. They would be falling asleep at the traffic light on the way home. I don't think this is an arrhythmia. And talking more about them, I started asking them about sleep. And soon I found out most of these patients that they thought were arrhythmia, they were actually having sleep problems that resulted in them passing out. So the arrhythmia, the abnormal heart rhythm was not the problem. It was the originator of the problem was inadequate sleep and they had sleep apnea. So that's where my curiosity began. And so I started studying sleep and looking at the interaction between sleep and all the uh, cardiovascular risk factors. Because if you look at it, if you have obstructive sleep apnea that is untreated, These are the things that it can cause. One, elevated blood pressure, or I should say resistant blood pressure, elevated blood sugar level, elevated cholesterol level. The blood can be thickened, predisposing you to a stroke or a heart attack. You can have palpitations or irregular rhythms in the heart. And worst case scenario, You can die suddenly in your sleep. And as you look at all those things that I just called out there, so many of those are related to the heart. And so that's what made me interested in sleep. Because in other words, if you don't get good sleep, it can affect your heart. 
Wow. So all those things you mentioned can be linked to not getting good sleep. Absolutely. And please, could you just go over that again? Because <laughs> I don't think that is common knowledge. If you do not get optimum sleep or you have obstructive sleep apnea specifically, that is untreated. It can cause the following resistant high blood pressure. You on four or five medications, your blood pressure is still not controlled. Now we know that one of the things that they should really be testing you for is to make sure you do not have obstructive sleep apnea. Your blood sugar level, excessive elevation in your blood sugar level, especially early in the morning when you wake up. Elevated cholesterol levels. These can all be caused by obstruct, untreated obstructive sleep apnea. Palpitations, extra beats in the heart, irregular rhythm, atrial fibrillation. There's been studies that show atrial fibrillation linked to obstructive sleep apnea. More important, even if we do all our fancy things that we can do in cardiology, the ablations, medical management, controlling the atrial fibrillation, if you have obstructive sleep apnea that is not treated, it's going to recur. The atrial fibrillation is going to recur. So arrhythmias, we talked about a stroke because that obstructive sleep apnea can cause changes in the coagulation system, making your blood thicker, predisposing you to a stroke and a heart attack and obstructive sleep apnea, you can obstruct and not wake up. And so you could die in your sleep. So, you know, what are some of the things that one can do to prevent obstructive sleep apnea? You know, just coming from a preventative point of view. I will go back first and see what are some of the things that we could do? Because I think the biggest problem, especially recently during the pandemic, that a lot of people had was insomnia, that inability to go to sleep, either going to sleep or staying asleep. And I'd like to start off with what I like to call some good sleep hygiene. What are some of the things that we can do to enable us to get better sleep at night? Number one, I'll start with the technology. We all have a computer, a laptop, a cell phone, and we tend to bring all of that into the bedroom with all the lights blaring. We need to leave and turn off all those devices when it's bedtime. The darkness is best to go to sleep. There's a little substance that's produced in our brain that's called melatonin that enables us to go to sleep. Melatonin is produced when it's dark. So all the blue light from all the technology doesn't enhance that production. So it's important to turn off the tell. The messages would be there when you wake up. So turn off the cell phone, leave the computers off, turn off the television, that's number one. Number two, we now know that the cooler the room is, the better it is for sleeping. So I know I'm gonna get some pushback from some women and men, but 65 degrees, keep that room cool, it is better for sleeping. And also the smell, the fragrance. And we know that lavender, these are some smells that predispose us to having good, restful, and it kind of simmers us down, getting us ready for sleep. The other thing is those activities, in other words, prepare for sleep during the day. So by the afternoon, we should start decreasing. If you smoke, 
Stop smoking, decreasing your tobacco intake, decreasing your alcohol intake, get ready for sleep. After dinner in the evening, dim the lights in the kitchen, turn the little lamps on. So everything starts simmering down in preparation. The other thing is your activity. Don't run a marathon at 9 p.m. at night. Even if you're going to do exercise, do those stretching exercises as opposed to heavy cardio before you go to bed. So looking at the activities that we do just before bedtime, the things that we do, heavy meal. You know, if you eat a heavy meal late at night, imagine all the stomach juices are there, digesting all that food. You can't sleep restfully. So having a heavy meal or eating earlier, simple things like this help us with our sleep. So these are all some of the sleep hygiene things that we can be doing to help us get better sleep at night. Now, what if all these non-medication ways fail? Number one, what can we do medication-wise? And Pregnant women take some of these medications, to your knowledge. I'm a proponent of starting first with healthy choices. So if you've tried all of these things and it does not work, the next level up would be what can I do to supplement what my body probably is not producing enough of? So the next choice, you can try some melatonin because you remember I told you that's the substance that your body produces to enable you to go to sleep at night. So one choice would be trying some melatonin to see if that could help you get better sleep and taking it at least two hours before your bedtime. And pregnant women, that it's just a natural source of melatonin that would be healthy because the body produces it and enables you to go to sleep. So you just supplementing what the body produces. And that was one of the questions actually by one of our other third year students, medical students, Joseph Levy. He was asking about, you know, could we take melatonin to help with sleep? What other medications? I mean, I know that, you know, melatonin is naturally produced. We've tried all the natural ways and some people still cannot sleep. At times they just have the issues on their minds psychosocial problems, things that cannot be really switched off. And I think some people might need more medications than melatonin. But even before other medications, because in terms of medication, sometimes I see so often that medications are prescribed for sleep and patients end up being addictive to these medications. So I'm very careful about that because you don't want to solve one problem with another problem. Uh, The other issue is that sometimes these medications have side effects that are often not pleasant. Some of these medications, some of the side effects could include suicidal tendencies, and it causes the opposite reaction to what you anticipate. In other words, hyper-anxiety. So the other thing is that having cognitive behavioral therapy, and this is where really talking to a sleep uh, specialist to specifically identify what the problem is, as opposed to just going directly to a pill in a bottle to solve a problem. Because sometimes the problem may be not necessarily wanting a pill, but therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, because of other things that's going on in your life that's preventing you from sleeping. So, you know, from all the conditions of sleep, we've talked about optimal time period to sleep for. We've talked about some of the problems with sleeping, not being able to sleep and sleep apnea. 
you've also talked about something called narcolepsy. Can you explain that to us? You mentioned it briefly. Can you talk to us a little bit more on what is narcolepsy in layman's terms? So people who have narcolepsy, it's almost the opposite. They can't stay awake. And again, there is an imbalance in the brain that causes them not to be able to sleep. So they they fall asleep very quickly. You'd be talking to them and in between you have narcolepsy. Sometimes it's difficult to distinguish whether it is true narcolepsy or it is obstructive sleep apnea. And that's why most people that have been diagnosed with narcolepsy, they first had a sleep test to show that they did not have obstructive sleep apnea. And then they went on the following day to have what we call a maintenance of wakefulness test to see if they can stay awake. Mm -hmm. And that's how it's diagnosed. So it's a different type of testing to diagnose those people that can stay awake. So the thing is that they they could be talking to you and they fall asleep. They just cannot stay away. away. And once you make that diagnosis, how do you treat that? Now, those people that have narcolepsy, they are often treated with drugs that stimulate them because you want to stimulate them to keep them awake. So in that case, people who have been diagnosed with narcolepsy are given drugs that can keep them awake that changes the balance of the hormones in the brain. And, you know, one of the other questions from uh, our medical student, Joseph Levy, is that he asked about, you know, medications for sleep, like Xanax for anxiety and Ambien to help sleep. Could you make comments on those and maybe relate them to, you know, young women in childbearing age or pregnancy? Yes. Like I said earlier, I know this is uh, prescribed widely. Uh, I've seen a lot of young people who started on these medications at a young age in their 50s and 60s and are addicted to it. And it's very, very difficult getting them off of the medication. I often, my recommendation would be that people who truly have a sleep problem should be seen by sleep specialists that can identify the true cause of the problem. Is it insomnia that they have? Is it some other type of parasomnias that they have that's causing the sleep problem? Is it narcolepsy? Is it any of the apneas, obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea? Because the whole field of sleep, there are so many different types of sleep problems. And it's not one size fit all. You wouldn't prescribe Xanax for everyone. So I'm leery about saying Ambien is good for everyone that has a sleep problem without knowing specifically what the sleep problem is. Because once you start down that road, sometimes it's very difficult to get off that highway. What is the most common sleep problem that you see in your practice? I think the most common sleep problem in America, if we were to look at the data, is probably insomnia, inability to either fall asleep or stay asleep. And so you have a social media presence in which you talk about hard facts, um, hashtag hard facts. Some of the topics you talked about include, you know, making diagnostic testing. You had talked about, you know, in one of them that I saw recently, uh, some transthoracic echocardiogram, which is a big word for like an ultrasound of the heart because you're a cardiologist and you do all these things too. So can you explain to us what 
why do we need an ultrasound of the heart? And what are the, is it transthoracic? Is it transesophageal? What are the different <laughs> kinds and what do they do? So transthoracic across the chest echocardiogram or ultrasound is a way of us looking at the heart. And it's a simple, it's painless. There's gel that's placed on the chest and you have these probes that can give us or allow us to have a window into the heart. I'd like to put it that way. And those pictures can give us or tell us a lot about the heart. So we can get a general overview of how well the heart is pumping. Because you remember, the heart is a pump. So we can get an idea of how well that heart is pumping. We can also get an idea of, we can see all the chambers in the heart, the four chambers of the heart. Are they the right size? Are they larger than what they should be? So this is the second information we can get from the ultrasound. The other thing that we could get from the ultrasound, we also see all the four valves in the heart. Is there a problem with the valve opening or is there a problem with the valve closing? Because sometimes the valves don't always close tightly. There may be a space. And if there's a space where you could have blood flowing backwards or regurgitating. So these are some of the things that we could get from an ultrasound, a transthoracic ultrasound. We can also make measurements of the thickness of the heart. So people who have high blood pressure or people who have other congenital problems, we can see and look at the thickness of the heart. So that is transthoracic. There are some structures that we don't often see very well when we do transthoracic. And sometimes often we have to do a trans esophageal, where we go into the esophagus, and that puts us very, very close to the heart. And again, we can look around, make all those measurements, and see those structures that we can't see when we just look across the chest. So are you saying that the patient basically swallows the, the probe. ultrasound probe? Yes, just like you do in endoscopy when they're looking down your esophagus when you go to the GI doctors. It's the same thing. We put the, th the, the probe into the esophagus, but the only thing is that it's into the esophagus, but we are looking at the heart because we are very close to the heart when we enter the esophagus. So it's again, an ultrasound that gives us a close-up look. And sometimes, especially people that have atrial fibrillation, there are little crevices that clots could hide. And so we could see these better through a transesophageal, the left atrial appendage. You may hear about that. That's a little appendage that's hanging off one of the chambers of the heart where clots can hide. And so we want to be sure that there are no clots there when we're trying to cardiovert someone. Because the clots, when you do a cardioversion, like a shock, it yes, could go to those, the brain. It can go to the brain and cause a stroke. So that's why we want to make sure that there are no hidden clots, not just in the heart the way that we could see, but in all those little crevices that such that you can safely apply electricity across the chest to cardiovert that individual from atrial fibrillation. And also one of your hard facts, you talked about how you can absolutely adapt a heart-healthy diet to different lifestyles, including one that incorporates eating out at restaurants. You said it might take a little planning. However, after the first few times, it can become routine. Can you talk to us some about being able to eat healthily, eating out? Sure. And it goes back to a simple word again. Eating does not have to be painful. 
You should enjoy eating. And so even if you go to a restaurant, you can make healthy choices, even at a restaurant, because let's start with the first course. There are good fats, there are good carbs, there's good protein. So even as you make your choices, you may want to choose a salad. Then the next choice would be what dressing do you put on the salad? So you could have the house dressing or you could select a little olive oil and vinegar on the salad as opposed to the thick, creamy dressings that are often served. So again, making healthy choices, even in terms of the salad, selecting those salad dressings that are not thick and creamy at the eating out. Then in terms of the actual preparation, in terms of, again, the plate can still look pretty at the restaurant in terms of your choices of vegetables, your choice of starch, your choice of protein. You can select fish that is broiled and not fried. I, I know talking to Southerners, that may really throw you off, but these are some of the choices, healthy choices, as you go out to eat instead of using, opting for baked, broiled, as opposed to fried. In terms of vegetables, having the vegetables steamed, again, instead of fried. Or now you have air fry where there's no, no oil. So again, eating out does not have to be a chore. Again, making healthy choices in terms of the starches, finding out, do they have brown rice that they could substitute for white rice? Do they have sweet potatoes that they could substitute for white potatoes. So if you are intentional about eating cleanly, as I call it, even going out to eat, you can make good healthy choices. And another thing you talked about in the your heart uh, facts, hashtag heart facts by Dr. Hutchinson is that, quoting you, we believe everyone should live rich and productive lives. And the best way to do that is to reduce the risk from the number one killer of men and women, which is heart disease and strokes. And you give these little nuggets of information on social media. How can we prevent the number one killer of men and women, uh, this heart disease and stroke? And I know we've talked about it here and there, but what is a summary statement that you would give even to young people that are young now, getting pregnant now, as they look forward to getting older? Absolutely. Great, great question. The number one killer, of course, among men and women in the United States and across the world is heart disease. And knowing those risk factors that can predispose to heart disease is absolutely important, even at a young age. Knowing your family history is good. You can't change your mom and dad. You can't give them away. You can't change your sex. But there are certain things that you can have control over. Knowing your numbers. What's your blood pressure? What's your cholesterol level? What's your, your BMI? What's your weight? Are you active? Do you smoke? These are all risk factors that can predispose to heart disease. And so at a very young age, knowing those numbers, your blood glucose level, knowing what it is, that's important because you want to make sure that you always remain in range in terms of those numbers. And uh, this is something you just posted three hours ago on your social media. And it says that new research suggests that feelings of anxiety and worry not only don't help, they may actually put you at increased risk for heart disease, stroke, and type 2 diabetes later in life. And you know, with the COVID, uh, this 
you know, sensation of worry and anxiety with this pandemic has been very rampant these days. You know, people, we don't realize when we're under stress that other things happen, especially in our bodies. They, I like to call them the stress hormones are produced. And these hormones at the cellular level can affect or blood vessels and cause, I like to call it sticky stuff in the blood vessels. And those sticky stuff in the blood vessels can give rise to a stroke and a heart attack. So being calm is so important because when you are under stress, it can predispose to high blood pressure. And as we talked about earlier, having high blood pressure for a long period of time can cause congestive heart failure, can cause your heart pump to fail, and can cause high blood sugar. So stress is not benign. Stress can cause physical damage to our bodies. So it's very, very important that we try to, as much as we can, to remove ourselves from stressful situations, those that we have control over. I know there are some situations where you don't have control over, and then you have to learn to control that environment. And this is where sometimes talking to someone can help. Because I know sometimes we hear that word psychologist and it's a bad word, but sometimes just being able to talk to someone and vent and share some of what's going on inside because it it can avoid us having external problems manifested in our bodies. Dr. Hutchinson, you know, just as we close, I'm one of the direct beneficiary of you as a mentor. I'm one of your mentees and I'm very grateful to you for just the way you encourage professionals and women in general. I'm so grateful to you for that. If you were to give like a pattern advice to people out there, to women, to minority women, as regards sleep and problems with sleep, because that is your one area of specialization. I want you to give a summary comment on that, number one. And also for young professionals, there are lots of young professionals that are aspiring just to be cardiologists, to be women's health specialists. If you were to give summary recommendations, both on young professionals aspiring to be cardiologists or professionals like yourself, and also for sleep, you know, what recommendations or summary would you give us? So the first thing I'd like to say is sleep is the sleeper in heart disease. And what do I mean by that? Sleep is that risk factor that we're not thinking about that can cause significant or could be contributing to some of the cardiovascular problems that we see. So it's important to get adequate sleep because adequate sleep refreshes you, you can think well, and it also enables you to maintain some of the things we talked about, good blood pressure, good blood glucose level, your cholesterol, all those things. So sleep is important. Just think of it. If you do not get good sleep, it can affect your heart. So just thinking about that would make you more intentional about developing good sleep hygiene such that every night you go to bed, you'll be intentional about getting good sleep. The second thing, question you asked about young professionals. One thing I would advise young professionals, if you are passionate about the whole cardiovascular field or whatever you want to go into, along the way, there are going to be a lot of naysayers. 
There are going to be a lot of people who don't have that confidence in you. But if you are passionate about what you want to be, you keep forging ahead. Get rid of the naysayers and you find those people that can encourage you along the way. And don't give up because sometimes, especially as a female in this field over the last 20 years, it's a field that's dominated mainly by men. And the people that would help you may not be the men in the field. There may be women in other businesses that could identify with what you're doing that would encourage you along the way. And that's why I say, find those people that encourage you and keep forging ahead. Dr. Barbara Hutchinson, all the way from Maryland, I just want to thank you so much for being a guest on Coco Pods podcast. This is where we educate women, especially minority women, mothers, and just the public on things that we can do for a healthy lifestyle. So thank you so much for being our guest on this podcast. Thank you for having me.